We are all very aware that as time progresses, so does change. This is probably most evident in our world today with the rise and the progression, the development of technology. Everything from convenience, the ability as you drive to be told where to turn rather than trying to find out where to turn with a map on your lap, being able to travel to a different country, a different continent even, in just a matter of hours, and thanks to the telephone and the internet, when you land, having a hotel room, a car, and a dinner reservation waiting right there for you. Two, that which may be life-saving, being able to monitor diseases and pump insulin without even thinking about it. The life-saving ability to call the police or a loved one with a device in your pocket from almost anywhere in the world. As time progresses, so does change, so does technology. And although good and helpful, because of technology, we now live in a strange world of ironies and oxymorons, many of which I find quite humorous. Think about it. Every single day, you sit at a computer and as a human being, try to access your own information while like a trained monkey, clicking on pictures of bridges to prove to a robot that you are not a robot. And we all know what the phone is today, right? The phone is the least used app on your phone. Think about the phone, the icon that you press to make a telephone call. We all know that there's a picture on that icon, and most of us know what that picture is of. You realize that there are people, children, sitting in this room right now who have no idea what that is because they've never used that kind of telephone. They would just as easily assume that that picture is some graphic artist rendering of a logo for the phone app. We live in strange times. And we live in strange times because of the rapid rise, the exponential rise of technology in our world. And these are things that are helpful. But they are ironic. They are oxymoronic. Things that you think about or you encounter every day but may not think about and, as I said, I'm thankful for them. They are helpful, and I find them humorous. I have no problem with them. But as time passes, there is something that continues to increase that I am not thankful for, that I do not find humorous in the least, that I do have a problem with, and that is this. Men and women who claim to be servants of Jesus Christ, who do not serve in the way prescribed by Jesus Christ. Men and women who strive to be excellent ministers, excellent servants of God, and yet not, do not do things the way that God has prescribed. And coming off of the heels of his lessons on false teachers, the Apostle Paul in our study of 1 Timothy now transitions to teaching us how we 
can be excellent servants. And we begin this three-part study today in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 7a. That is the first part of verse 7. 1 Timothy verses 6 through 7, Paul writes this, In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. We'll stop there this morning. This morning I want to give you three applications of the Word of God. Three applications of the Word of God that are required of the excellent servant. In other words, everything in Christian service, not to mention simply Christian living, is rooted in and revolves around the Word of God. So, to be a faithful or excellent servant, an individual must use the Word of God. And this morning we will see three ways he or she can do this, three ways they must do this, three applications of the Word of God that are required of the excellent servant. First, the excellent servant ministers the Word faithfully. He ministers the Word faithfully. Look again at the first half of verse 6. He says to Timothy, in pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. The faithful servant, in order to serve excellently, will prioritize the Word of God in his service. Specifically, he will place it before other believers for the sake of God's glory and their growth. Now, we have seen this phrase before in the Pauline epistles, the phrase, these things. It is a way that Paul summarizes or concludes a previous discussion. In this instance, Paul is referring to that which he has already taught in this letter, much of which revolves around addressing the doctrines and methodologies of the false teachers. These are the things that Paul is talking about here as he talks about ministering the word faithfully. Now remember, this is a letter, as far as Paul knew, to an individual, Timothy. And it was for Timothy's encouragement and training as an elder, as a pastor. So, Paul is calling him and other pastors to serve up the word. But the ultimate calling to be a, quote, good servant of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus allows us to broaden the exhortation to all who serve, in other words, all Christians. And the way this is done is by teaching the Word of God. Laying out the teaching in front of others, which is what the phrase pointing out means. To lay it out, to teach it. It also has the nuance of remind. Remind the Christians of what they are to believe and how they are to behave. And that word remind that, again, the phrase pointing out means in the Greek is a great practical point. Because we can often think we don't need to encourage or admonish the word to other believers because there is an assumption that they already know the Bible. They know what is sin. They know what is not sin. And this, of course, is a fair and loving assumption of other Christians. But you have perhaps experienced with addressing someone else or even in your own life 
that when we sin, we don't do so because we are ignorant of the Scriptures. We know them. We know we are violating the Scriptures. But repentance often does not occur until we are reminded by somebody else. You often say, thanks for reminding me. I needed to hear that. I knew that was true, but it means something different coming from you. Someone else needs to bring it to mind. As a pastor, I have often been told by a believer who comes to me for counsel, often grieving over sin, that what I told them was exactly what they thought I was going to say. But it wasn't until I said it, what I, that it wasn't until I said what they were already thinking, what they were already convicted by, what they already knew, did they actually follow through with that previous thought. We do this all the time. But back to the text. Speaking of an excellent servant, what this word pointing out shows us is that this is not a command. This is not an order. Paul is not telling Timothy, force them to obey. Tell them what you need them to do, what you want them to do. This is a humble persuading. This is gentle and loving. This is trusting that the Word of God has power You can't add to it. You shouldn't try to add to it. You present to them the Word of God and let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit. And most importantly, this is Timothy himself submitting to the Word of God and thereby not playing the role of God, but a servant of God. You see, the true minister of the Word allows the Word to speak for itself. The faithful servant recognizes that all believers have the Holy Spirit and you are not Him. But by teaching or reminding someone of the Word, you provide the platform through which the Holy Spirit works. The platform which He commanded us to use, the Word of God. Keep in mind that we are talking about false teachers who have taken the Word and misinterpreted it. So not just quote Scripture, but we need to also explain what it means to them, how it pertains to their specific situation, how it applies to their lives, maybe not even tomorrow or yesterday, but right now in what they are thinking and doing. We are to explain what the Scriptures mean, lovingly, gently, but firmly, because it is the Word of God. Then, We let the Holy Spirit convict. I get it. It's frustrating. It is frustrating when people don't change. It is frustrating when you present the Word of God and they reject it and say, I know that, but... But that's not on you. As much as we love them and we want to plead with them to repent and change, it is not our role to change the heart. Let the Holy Spirit convict. Yelling, manipulating, putting down. Those are tools of the evil spirits who teach the doctrines of demons that we saw in weeks prior to today. And by the way, the tense of this verb indicates that pointing out is to be constant. It is to be a way of life. This is what we are to do. That means not only do we always minister with the Word, but we always minister with the Word only. 
not our opinions, not voices in our heads, not our experiences. We'll talk about this more in a minute. Now back in the text, Paul says all of this is to be done in order to be, quote, a good servant of Christ Jesus. Look at the verse carefully. Paul does not say that in order to be a good servant of Christ Jesus, you need to do several things, one of which is this. No, he says that if you habitually bring up the word to the brethren, you will be a good servant of the Lord. And although the word for deacon is used here, the context tells us that Paul is using the word servant to refer to any who serve. This, of course, again, refers to all Christians. We are all to be serving. We are all to be called servant. And good, good servant, it means good in the way that the New Testament means it. Not just good. How are you doing? Good. That was good. It's okay. It's good. It means noble, admirable, excellent. And of course, this contrasts with the heretical liars who are advancing the doctrines of demons. We, on the other hand, by using the Word of God, advance the doctrines of God. Not even of the good angels. It is not their doctrine. It is the doctrine of their God. Same God. The Word of God. So you need to ask yourself. You need to look back at your, even this past week, look at your habit when you interact with other Christians, when you encounter a brother or sister in need, and I don't mean just physical need, I mean spiritual need, weeping over their sin or enjoying their sin without any understanding of how they are grieving God or an understanding but not a care in the world. When you encounter a brother or sister in need, how do you help them? As humans... And further, as believers, we have been given the ability to love, to sympathize, to empathize with others. We hurt when others hurt. And in our emotional desire to help, we can easily default into wanting to fix the problem as quickly as possible and in any way possible. And unfortunately, as quickly as possible often leads to unbiblical advice or even extra-biblical advice, which is not wrong, but in many circumstances can be damaging. I get it. The truth hurts. And we fear that the truth will hurt, especially those who are already emotionally or spiritually hurting. And so we shy away from it. Because we think... And maybe even based on experience, you know this has happened. That if I present the Word of God, even if I do it graciously, humbly, and lovingly, the truth hurts. But my friends, so do injections and surgeries. But they are the only way to fix the problem. Remember, we are talking about being servants of Jesus Christ, not servants of ourselves, and definitely not servants of the world. To be clear, we serve the world, but we do not serve according to the world or with the world's ways. And by being a good servant of Christ, you both serve Christ and His people, and you serve according 
to the will of Christ. And I want to caution you about a couple of things because I think we can all fall into that trap of just being pragmatic. I'm going to fix this problem with whatever works. Whatever I have found works for other people, even if it is not according to the the Word of God. We've talked about this a lot in our current parenting class. It is easy to just give a kid a piece of candy. It is easy just to ignore. It takes time to teach. It takes effort and self-control to discipline, to teach them how to make the right decisions in the future. And often in our encountering with other adult Christians, we just want the easy fix for us and for them. And so I want to caution you about a couple of things. And these warnings may help you keep the Word of God central, especially as it pertains to your service. It helps us focus so that we don't bring in other things or confront things that do not need to be confronted And I would encourage those of you in the elder training to especially pay attention. First, just because something bothers you doesn't mean it is wrong. Just because something bothers you doesn't mean it is wrong. In other words, the litmus test of whether or not something is wrong or sinful is not your experience, is not your discomfort, discomfort. It is not you would do it a different way. We all have our preferences. We all have our way of doing things. We all have our own experiences and praise God for those. But we must evaluate every behavior against the Word of God, especially the ones that annoy us, especially the ones that bother us or go against what we would do. Because it is when we are bothered or offended that we tend to default to what we want rather than what God wants. And I'll take this even further. Just because something, just because something someone did was in fact wrong when that person did it doesn't mean that that action is always wrong. Someone may do something that is Sinful, and they do it for sinful reasons. Attending church, even, doesn't mean that everyone who does that is in sin. And I say this because at least half of you come from churches where you were burned, often personally, by your former church, by your former elders, by your former pastor. Something I say or something our church does may trigger a horrible memory that you connect to someone who hurt you, that you connect to someone who was a full-blown heretic. But that doesn't mean that what they use for evil is evil when others do it. Evaluate through the lens of Scripture. Another principle to keep in mind is this. Outside of direct obedience to the Bible, your way is not necessarily the right way. This is the beauty of spiritual gifts. This is the beauty of personalities. This is the beauty of the family of God. We all do things in different ways. 
And rather than just having a handful of elders and deacons be puppet masters for the rest of the church, we want people to grow. We want people to to grow into their ministries and say, you know what, I know you've been doing this for 15 years, but why don't we try to do it this way? And it may bother us. We may have tried it before and exploded in our faces, but when they do it, it may revolutionize how we do things in our accounting or in our administration. And in no way do I want to discount what the Lord has taught you or has brought you through. But sometimes those things are so powerful for us, often being experienced that have changed the courses of our lives, that we can often lose sight of the fact that the person you are talking to you is not you. But they are a believer, and you must nourish them with the only thing that provides true nourishment, God's Word, not your family heritage, not your way of doing things, not your experience, God's Word. Yes, use your experiences as examples of God's blessings, as examples of failures and successes, as a way to provide hope. Look, this you can get through this. You can conquer the sin, but don't make it the basis for anything that only belongs to God and God's Word. Focus on Him. We are servants of God's Word, and even our ways of doing things, even our experiences, even our feelings must submit to that and be used as part of our service as we serve with God's Word. And ultimately, pointing out the Word and being a good servant of Christ is you yourself being affected by the Word. And that will lead to humility as you grow in your appreciation of the power of the Word such that you have no problem letting go and let God speak to others through you. God speaking, but through you. Not because you had a dream, not because God spoke to you directly, but because you are ministering the Word and God's Word only. He speaks through you. But it is when we bring in our own opinions and our own thoughts and our own feelings that it is no longer God speaking because God does not speak in that way anymore. So if you want to speak for God, if you want to be a mouthpiece of God, you can only give the Word of God. That's it. And that leads us to our second application of the Word of God that is required of the excellent servant, the excellent servant ministers the word personally. Personally. Look at the second half of verse 6. Constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Show me a Christian who thinks he has arrived, and I will show you a Christian who more than others has not. To be an excellent servant, you must not only use the word for the betterment of others, but you must feed on the word for the glory of God in your own life. The word nourished is clearly a metaphor of eating or feeding on something. The idea here would be the reading and digesting of the word of God. And just like a child's physical growth requires physical nourishment, so a Christian 
at any stage of life and spiritual maturity must be nourished on the scriptures for spiritual growth. And notice that Paul also says constantly, it must be daily, it must be frequent, it must be constant, it must be all the time. In other words, this doesn't mean check off the box because you read the word that morning. Think about it all day. Discipline yourself to make every decision based on the Word of God. Bring God into everything. What is it that we are to constantly nourish ourselves on? He says, the words of the faith and the sound doctrine which you have been following. Words of the faith refers to the gospel, the objective body of faith that we believe in. Sound doctrine is simply the proper interpretation of the scriptures, the objective body of Christian teaching. Paul ends the verse by reminding Timothy that there is nothing new under the sun. He's not referring to novel ideas or cutting-edge theology. It is simply the same sound doctrine that Timothy has been following since he was saved. Later, in 2 Timothy, also a letter that Paul wrote to Timothy in verse 3.15, he writes this, From childhood, Timothy, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. We know that Timothy had faithful people in his family that taught him the word of God. And the fact that Timothy is in the position that he is shows that he has been learning and practicing the truth. And although this part of the verse is a direct address to Timothy that comes from Paul's personal experience with Timothy, we know that this is true of all believers. Stick with what you have known to be true about the Scriptures and continue on in this. There's no need to be bored with it. There's no need to say, I've heard a sermon on this before. I need something new. There is nothing new, praise God. Just stick with what you know and learn it even better. The importance of being nourished by the Word is especially significant if the Christian is to follow the first part of the verse. You cannot properly instruct others if you are not feeding on the Word yourself. And to use Paul's vocabulary, you cannot be a good servant of Christ Jesus if you are not nourished on God's Word. Keep in mind that the word nourish involves not just reading and understanding, but digesting. What is that picture from food? When we digest is when the body takes the nutrition from that food and uses it to keep our bodies going and to grow and to replenish and re regenerate cells. And so it's not just reading it. It's not just even memorizing it. It's not even just understanding it, digesting it, thinking about the Word, applying it to yourself. Just knowing it doesn't make you grow. Applying it does. Digesting it does. Even the best waiters in a world-class three-Michelin-star restaurant need to eat in order to serve and survive. And to take that illustration further... The waiters are to taste what their particular restaurant serves in order to be able to properly serve up, to recommend, to describe the dishes to others who are there to eat. 
and the servant of the Lord must do the same. To know the Word so that he can recommend and describe pertinent Bible passages. Even if you yourself have not experienced the particular trial or decision or sin that you are helping others with, you know what the Word says. Serve it up. A few weeks ago, I jokingly said I was going to trademark a phrase that I came up with, if you remember, spiritually transgender. I have another one for you. Spiritual bulimia. We are not to take the word, read it, know it, study it, and then just regurgitate it for others without any of the nourishment and calories that it provides. When you study God's word solely for the purpose of rebuking others or telling other Christians what to do, then you're practicing spiritual bulimia. And like physical bulimia, you not only end up hurting yourself, but it can be an addictive way of life and is frankly disgusting. On this side of heaven, we must never stop feeding on the words of Christ, learning and repenting, meditating and growing, memorizing and standing firm. We are, after all, talking about how to be an excellent servant. And that involves excellence in serving others with the word and excellence in nourishing ourselves with the word. In his book, Teaching to Change Lives, Howard Hendricks, some of you have read this. If you've read this, you know I have a very old copy. Even the cover looks like it's something from the 70s and 80s. Um, this is a great book. I'll read the whole, the whole subtitle, Teaching to Change Lives, Develop a Passion for Communicating God's Word to Adults or Children in the Church, Home, Bible Study, or School. Highly recommend this. Leslie, I think we should actually get one of these for every Sunday school teacher. But there's a famous illustration that he gives in this book, and I want to read it for you. He says, when I was a college student, back before the earth's crust hardened, I worked in the college dining hall. And on my way to work at 5.30 every morning, I walked past the home of one of my professors. Through a window, I could see the light on at his desk, morning after morning. At night, I stayed late at the library to take advantage of evening study hours and returning home at 10.30 or 11 o'clock. I would again see his desk light on. He was always poring over his books. One day he invited me home for lunch, and after the meal I said to him, Would you mind if I asked you a question? Of course not. What keeps you studying? You never seem to stop. His answer, I learned later, was in the words of another, but they had become his own. Son, I would rather have my students drink from a running stream than a stagnant pool. He was one of the best professors I ever had, a man who marked me permanently. This is not just something for teachers, it's for all of us. When we present the Word of God, if you want to fellowship biblically, 
if you want to encourage, if you want to admonish, if you want to be a good Christian brother or sister for the other brethren in your life, then be someone who pours over the Word, who nourishes himself on the Word so that when you fellowship, you fellowship with others and they drink from a running fresh stream rather than a stagnant pool of the verses you memorized years ago, of the few doctrines you mastered when you were in college, of the few sermons you can quote that you listened to when you first got saved 30 years ago. Let's be running streams. Can I give you a very practical way of knowing whether or not you are truly nourished on the Word or if you are studying it to teach, correct, or rebuke others only. Because we all come across other believers who study the Word and then come at us full force. Did you know such and such? Did you know that you're wrong in thinking this? Can you believe Grace believes this? Can you believe Roger said that? Can you believe John MacArthur did whatever? If what you are studying is truly of God it would humble you. And if you are humble, you do not attack. If you truly believe that what you know will help others, then you would not criticize, slander, gossip, or yell. You would lovingly, humbly, and graciously plead, pray, explain, call to repentance. If you have a tendency to be on the attack, may I challenge you that you are not nourishing yourself on the Word of God, or perhaps what you are attacking with is not even the Word of God, and I'm pretty sure deep down you know it. Are you promoting what is from the mouth of God from your own lips? Minister the Word personally. We are looking at three applications of the Word of God that are required of the excellent servant. He ministers the Word faithfully and personally. And finally, he ministers the Word exclusively. Verse 7, have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Paul, as you know, likes to offend just kidding. As we'll see in a minute, it's not as offensive as you may think. Paul encourages Timothy to avoid worthless myths and fables that were being spread. There's a strong adversative here in the phrase, have nothing to do with. Similar to how we would use this today, it indicates a strong refusal of something. We say that, I want nothing to do, keep me out of it. I want nothing to do with that situation. You're going to get in trouble. I want nothing to do with that person. Refuse, decline, turn away, reject, avoid. All of these are nuanced in this phrase, which is just one word in the Greek. Have nothing to do with. As Paul goes on to describe these myths or fables, we see why Timothy and all believers are to avoid them. First, he says they are worldly. It might help to be reminded of what we talked about last week in verse 5 regarding that which is sanctified. Remember, sanctified means set apart for holy use or made holy. 
that which is sanctified is the opposite of that which is profane or used for common purposes, which is what this word worldly means. These fables are profane. They are ungodly. They are accessible to everyone. They are of the world. Anyone who is in the world can have them. In other words, they are not of the redeemed and they are not of God. In fact, they are radically in opposition to that which is holy. They are completely distinct and separate from the things of God. They are worldly fables. And the reason this is so important in the context of the church and specifically what ministers of Christ present to others in the church is because nothing aside from the Word of God has any authority or claim in the Christian's life. It is therefore to be refused and rejected. We are to have nothing to do with them. The other description is that they are fables fit only for old women. Fables is the same Greek word as myths, which we saw in chapter 1, verse 4, when Paul described the Ephesian heresy as involving strange doctrines, myths, fables, and endless genealogies. These could range from allegorical or mythical interpretations of the Old Testament to full-blown fairy tales, legends, or fiction. So, they could range from things we tell our kids to stay in line that we know aren't true, cultural myths, the boogeyman. Every culture seems to have some sort of myth regarding the consequences of not clearing your dinner plate, what will happen to that child. Most cultures have a story of how the world was created. There's also, although existing in different forms around the world and in Albania because of their history with atheism and communism, it's for New Year's. The American version involves a fat man in a red suit who, like some sort of perverted voyeur, keeps a naughty or nice list of every kid in the world. On the other end of the spectrum, you have anything that contradicts the gospel. So this goes far beyond fairy tales and urban legends that a child eventually grows out of. These are false doctrines and misinterpretations of God's truth. And let me read the end of chapter 1, verse 4, which explains why they are so dangerous. He says they give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. The final way that Paul describes these things is by referring to them as fit only for old women. The picture in that day would be of gossipy old women who no longer have children at home and are perhaps widowed, so they have nothing to do all day. They have nothing better to do in their minds than to sit around and talk about worthless things. And there is the idea here of unlimited gullibility. And it's not that only old women talk about such things. In fact, right here, he's telling a young man, Timothy, not to have anything to do with them. The phrase was actually a common expression of that time that was used in philosophical circles to put down others' thoughts or beliefs. And we understand it today because we have the phrase, old wives' tales. That's an old wives' tale. It's not true. 
and things that are so absurd that only the proverbial old women would tell them and so absurd that only children would listen. By calling them fables and describing them as worldly and old wives' tales, Paul is emphasizing that they are neither righteous nor rational. And to put that in the context of false teachers, they do not have any biblical basis for what they are saying, nor is there any true spiritual content. And what Paul is telling Timothy is to avoid teaching these things, but also not to engage in them. Don't debate these people. Don't entertain them. Just preach the truth. This is also true for the Christian who desires to be an excellent servant, which should be all of us. So, if both we and Timothy are not to entertain such things, what are we to believe? What are we to listen to? What are we to teach? Exclusively God's Word. The key word being exclusively. Not a blend of what other religion, religions teach plus the Bible. Not a blend of your experience and what God says in His Word. I believe that is the most common one. It is very hard for some people to accept what the Bible says when their personal experiences seem to contradict the Bible. And far too often, Christians believe the Bible, but they only use the Bible as a starting point, a skeletal outline. And then they let their own thoughts, their own experiences, their own beliefs fill in the blanks. Roman numeral one, God created the earth. But fill in the blanks with what that means to you based on your observation of the world. Roman numeral two, Jesus is Lord. Fill in the blanks of the places that you don't need to submit to Jesus as Lord because, well, I think the nice thing to do is this. Well, if I do this, these consequences will happen. Ah, you just don't understand. I may not understand what you're going through, but I do understand this. I am not God. Oh, I'm glad you said that. Because, you know, sometimes you tell me what to do and I'm tired of you telling, hey, let me finish. I am not God. And neither are you. God is God. And only the Bible is His Word. So before studying those books, make sure you master the book. Stop trusting in your own experiences and trust His experience on the cross. And stop ministering with what might be true and start ministering with what is true. You are not God. Your words are not Scripture. So I highly suggest that you minister the Word faithfully, personally, and exclusively. In pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, please protect us and guard us against using things that are not from your word. Though they may not be commonly accepted as cultural myths or fables, we understand that that's what our experiences are when we present them as truth, as a way to do right or wrong. Help us, Father, to be humbled before your word because we want to minister your word, not attack. Because we want to minister to you and not fail in worship. Because we want to minister to others and not discourage and hurt. Father, give us the boldness to speak the truth when the truth hurts. Give us the personal and emotional grace, the social kindness, but the biblical firmness to present your word to those who need it. I pray that you would help us to continue growing as a church to practice biblical fellowship. And in that, I pray that we wouldn't just strive to minister the word to others in the church, but that we would be those who let people know when we need to be ministered to. Use us, Lord, to set aside our fear of man, our pride, and develop relationships that are biblical and Christ-centered. And use those relationships in a way that we minister the word to others, to ourselves, and only the word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.